Welcome back, everyone. Hope your break was good. We're ready to jump into a new panel. And this time, we're going to bring on the panel of economic solutions that wage life, not war. I would like to bring Ryan to the screen. Hello. Thank you all for being here. I am Ryan Inger. I use they, them pronouns, and I am from Alliance for Just Money. And I'm here to facilitate economic solutions that wage life, not war. Uh, so we have two organizations uh, present in economy of our own and Alliance for Just Money. Uh, so far, um, economic solutions have been hinted throughout <laughs> this whole conference. I'm really excited for uh, this opportunity to share um, our suggestions, and hopefully you will feel radicalized in the economic world. <laughs> um, so I'd like to start by introducing all of our panelists. Um, we have Carmen Rios. Uh, she is an economy of our own's digital director, a feminist superstar who has been writing about the intersections of race, gender, and class, and holding space for feminists and queer folks online for over 10 years. Uh, presenting with Carmen is Ricky Gard Diamond, a Miss Magazine columnist and author of Screwnomics, How the Economy Works Against Women and Real Ways to Make Lasting Change. Her Miss column, Women Unscrewing Screwnomics, focuses on women making change in a field exclusively male until fairly recently. And then we also have Lucille Eckridge, who is a founding member of Alliance for Just Money and has been active in the American Monetary Institute since 2005, which AFJM st uh, stems from. In 2013, she co-authored Ivory Tower Graduates in the Red, The Role of Debt in Higher Education. And in 2017, she authored two chapters in a book she co-edited, The Neoliberal Agenda and the Student Debt Crisis in U.S. Higher Education. Uh, those chapters and her article situate the student debt problem in the context of monetary critique and reform. So hopefully this panel will um, yeah, be enlightening and inspiring. So I would like to start off with uh, Ricky and Carmen from An Economy of Our Own. Hello, we're, we're very happy to be here. Um, I, um, I probably should warn you that just before this started, I got bumped off about 14 times and uh, I moved my computer. So I'm without any of my usual equipment or accoutrements. So if I disappear, that's why. Uh, not because I don't love being here. I do. I've uh, really gotten a lot out of the meetings that I've attended. It's been great. So um, I want to... Uh, Ryan, you'd like me to, sh oh, it's Carmen, please. Do you want to uh, say anything as a hello? Well, yeah, hello. It is great to be here today. Uh, and yeah, our president, Ricky's going to kick off our presentation too. And I know that we are, I think we're at the top. So I'm ready yeah. whenever you all are. Okay. And I'm doing the slideshow, right? Yes. Okay. I'm on. All right. Hold on. Perfect. Okay. So I'll start over again. Um, we're going to talk about what isn't usually mentioned on Wall Street, and that is that the economy was not created uh, by women. Uh, we didn't make their rules or invent their tools. 
they uh, have been talking about in a man-to-man -man discourse, talking about oikonomia for about 2,400 years uh, now. And uh, that word oikonomia literally means home management, but um, it's been an exclusive male conversation. And uh, he likes to talk about it in this way, showing us what the highest purpose of our evolution has been. You don't see any women anywhere, do you? So now we're going to do a women's economic big picture, show you a little bit different version of our evolution. This is Venus of Willendorf. She's uh, 30,000 years old, carved with um, stone tools from a woolly mammoth uh, tusk uh, during the Ice Age. This one is um, the goddess Ceres. About 12,000 years ago, the climate warmed up. Uh, and archaeologists agree that women began to uh, plant seeds, and this is Ceres, the Roman goddess who sits atop the Vermont State House where I live. Uh, and this one is, of course, somebody you recognize, the Statue of Liberty. Um, <laughs> not even 250 years ago. This one is 30,000 years ago. This one's 12,000 years ago. This one is only not even 250 years ago when the colony's richest men here in the United uh, the colony, the British colonies declared independence from King George in 1776 while holding slaves, killing natives, and marrying women whose rights and properties became his under common law. We've been hearing about common law in, uh, from the Supremes lately here. Um, that same year, Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations, founding modern economics, also called classic economics to make things even more confusing. A hundred years later, all women had gotten for all their trouble was this statue. They wouldn't become citizens for another 44 years. So keep this time uh, thing in, in mind. So let's consider women's economic contribution, shall we? During the Ice Age, women began to twist fibers into thread and uh, chew leather to make cordage, and they wove carrier bags for babies and gathered food, invented looms with stone weights for weaving cloth, and uh, just imagine what it would be like in the Ice Age without that invention. This is an outdoor oven um, women's agriculture led to her firing clay pottery to store surplus food and baked bread about 8,000 years ago. The patriarchy's wars date back only 5,000 years ago, which comforts me a little, and oikonomia is even younger, only 2,400 years, as I said. So very recently is um, men's industrial revolution fueled by burning coal and oil. This labor-saving circular saw was invented by a shaker woman named Tabitha Babbitt, who attached it to her spinning wheel because by then, men had mechanized women's textiles and were cooking food in tin cans, uh, getting rich by transforming female producers into consumers. But the, here's the key takeaway. Women were the first property our reproductive powers and labor controlled by force, law, religion, and custom as wives, concubines, and slaves the past 5,000 years 
were the foundation of every so-called civilization and its wealth. Rape and control of women's bodies is still weaponized and used to control and devalue whatever is female. And of course, we've been seeing that lately. Now, economists from John Maynard Keynes to Michael Hudson today are clear. War demanded the creation of accounts like the ones you see up here in the corner uh, in cuneiform. This was the beginning of numbers, writing, and literacy. Emperors and pharaohs kept track of who got what booty and who owed debts or tribute. The first recorded wages on clay tablets, tablets were for a concubine's work but her, her earnings, which were in bushels of grain because coins hadn't been invented yet, uh, were paid to her uh, owner, not given to her. Um, you can see from this Greek vase down below in the orange there, that women often were the booty of war, the property, the gains won by men. You remember Homer's Odyssey and the Greeks destroying Troy. What were they after? Helen. The statue here shows another famous event, the rape of the Sabines. Have you heard of that? When Rome's neighbors refused them marriage, the Romans invaded and took the women they needed to populate their new city. This was not unusual. Agriculture and a military requires a lot of people to work and women's reproductive labor made populations possible. Her statue, as valuable property remains in our customs. Well, we don't like to talk about it, but it's the father of the bride who gives her away to the groom. It means something different these days, but nevertheless. All right, this is a picture of uh, the Rape of the Sabines uh, repainted in 1795 by um, Jacques-Louis David during the French Revolution. And its title is a little different too. It's the intervention of Sabine women. You can see she's portrayed here as rather central and courageous and very different from the Sabine statue in the last. So what has happened? Well, women began reading in the 18th century and we've been reading ever since. Carmen? Hello. Um, so we're still reading and the patriarchy obviously remains. We see that war and accounts are still men's territory. So the person you see in this picture is Blaise Bernays, a character that cartoonist Pico Todd um, invented with Ricky for Ricky's book, Screwnomics, How the Economy Works Against Women and Real Ways to Make Lasting Change. So screwnomics is a word that basically refers to the economan's unspoken but widely applied economic theory that women should always work for less or even better for free. Um, basically, who believes that women are still property? So, you know, we know that the economy is also still waged as war, that the bigger the pile of money, the fewer women allowed. And although women have won the right to open a bank account without a male co-signer and work in banks, manage banks, money still speaks in a male voice. The rules and the tools of our economy remain his. So, you know, your father, or your son, or your brother might work in this world without being the, the kind of economan that Ricky is talking about, but it's this mythical ideal that 
you and the men you love need to be wary of this idea that he's a charming narcissistic sociopath idealized in the financial world where greed is good okay let's look at uh some more um recent history because wives concubines and slaves competing for male controlled survival has cast a long shadow um, this is a picture of world-famous contralto singer Marian Anderson in 1939 giving a famous concert at the Lincoln Memorial. She's outdoors because she's been denied a concert at Constitutional Hall. Her race was the reason. The hall's owners were the daughters of the American Revolution, not the daughters of the Confederacy, mind you, the white New England Mayflower daughters, and despite the 13th 14th, 15th, and 19th Amendments to the Constitution by then. Women fought for their human rights, but these were only one in intersectional pieces. Systemic racism cost us women, divided our voting rights remain a question today, and so is our right to choose motherhood or not. We need to confront our whole history. So, our first victory was uh, getting an education that had been denied to us. And you can see that white females and black female firsts happened pretty close together. In 1848, married women, white women gained property rights. They hadn't had them before because they were in fact property, but most black women remained property until 1865. Racial divisions, um, still separate women to the advantage of the patriarchy. And so why do I say that? Well, here's the reason. You know this uh, really recent uh, history from the 60s. You've seen this on Mad Men. Um, it still appears to be the ideal of evangelicals and the Republican Party. No self-respecting Black woman, Latina or lesbian would put up with this and neither did any of the women who began the second wave of feminism. And yet, systemic sexism and systemic racism still divide and conquer. So here's what I mean by that. In 1920, we finally got the right to vote. White women won that, mostly. In 1965, uh, the Voting Rights Act won Black and Brown and Indigenous women's vote. Um, after that, when all women were more or less united, we won Roe v. Wade, we won the Americans with Disabilities Act, the LGBTQ marriage uh, was won in 2015, but now, where are we? All of that is in question again. So I'm sure many of you recall that in 1928, Virginia Woolf wrote her famous essay that asserted that women need two things, an income and a room of her own. So after years of asking for equal wages, uh, we've begun to see that equality in a corrupt economic system waged as war is not what we actually want. We want an economy of our own. Um, we understand at AEOO that our highlighting of women's voices for change doesn't mean we're leaving anyone out. You know, feminist economics um, are obviously not just for women and don't just benefit women. A women-centered economy only means no more mansplaining only. Together, we believe that we can flip, flip the script on a sexist and racist economy. 
So part of how we do that is that we have this incredible advisory board of women advocates and activists who are doing terrific work to change conversations and propose new solutions when it comes to real economic justice for all. Um, and our purpose here is to lift up solutions that, the, that women are innovating and have been innovating. How can we make them more widely recognized and create a kind of economic think tank, a platform and a megaphone for these new ideas? So, you know, supposedly uh, women would rather talk about death than money, but we believe that women are discouraged from thinking and talking about economics. And so we're trying to build a widening community of women who support one another in women's ways of learning about economic issues and women's ways of knowing about money. Uh, we intend to raise this chorus of voices together. So two years ago, we decided to begin this work. Uh, I think it was, Ricky, like one week before uh, March 2020. <laughs> um, and so, you know, our plans obviously went out the window the way that I'm sure many of yours did. And so we had to ask ourselves this question of what could we do now? And so what we've done um, is we've created digital rooms of our own. We've created Zooms of our own. We've hosted introductory sort of 101 panel conversations among incredible women scholars, authors, and activists about subjects that range from cooperative businesses to public banking to eco-feminist economics to caring economies, mutual aid, currency. We've also launched a new fireside chat series um, called Counting on Women, which is more intimate conversations. Um, we presented, uh, we've also presented at national conferences and led sessions like these. And last year we launched our very first learning circle, a small consciousness raising group online that is a multi-week series um, focused on safely learning together about an economic topic. So our first topic was public banking. We've now done two of these. And by the end of this year, we're hoping to sort of package those so that anyone can access that kind of, you know, opportunity from home or run their own learning circle with a group of friends in their communities. We're going to be tackling more topics uh, later this year, or early next year. I'm going to drop a link in the chat in a little, in a minute, um, where we're asking folks sort of what they want to learn more about. And of course, I will also drop a link to our giving circle, which is another way for you to help us amplify women's voices. So the big question remains, are there distinctive women's ways of knowing money and the economy? Our underlying sort of mega question here at AEOO is how do we transform an economy waged as war into an economy waging life. We've pieced together sort of a quilt work of solutions and ideas from all of these different talks, and they're all made available on YouTube and on our website for time immemorial um, as part of our mission to make this information accessible to anyone who feels like current conversations about the economy and economic justice are just not, you know, in their language or accessible to them. So, you know, you'll find so many just diverse women joining together to talk about all of these, you know, important issues to envision a feminist economic future. Um, you'll hear from experts and you'll also find some short films and clips from a lot of our events. Um, our next event, 
uh, is actually on Monday night. It is free or when you RSVP, you could um, generously offer a donation of your liking as well. Um, it's called Digital Possibilities and it's a conversation I'll be moderating with Brea Adiamo, um, a scholar on race, gender, and its intersections with technology, especially uh, social media and tech infrastructure. Marie Tessier, who is a veteran um, moderator of comments at the New York Times, as well as a journalist by training who recently published a book called Digital Suffragists about how women are silenced online and what we can do about it. And the illustrious Rianne Eisler, who runs the Center for Partnership Studies um, and is currently working with AI innovators to figure out how to sort of take the domination politics that we see on the internet out of the way that we're programming um, AI to make it more equitable and safe as it's scaling. And so I'll also drop a link in the chat in a minute for RSVPing for this event on Eventbrite. And, you know, obviously, if you miss it, we'll also send out a recording. So if you RSVP, you'll be the first one to get the recording too. So basically at AEOO, in women we trust, and we have this little asterisk here for the men and the other folks who love us. Um, we know that there's a lot of them, and yet it's still too hard to find, you know, places where women's leadership, women's voices, and women's ways of knowing are really respected and amplified, especially in the world of money. We believe that women's leadership is and must be different and as innovative and all in as our foremothers who were twisting fibers together or planting seeds or repurposing what had been cast aside as old fashioned. We need to become fast and circular to cut through old ways of thinking about money and livelihoods and each other. And obviously we know that it cannot come soon enough. So thank you so much for this time to share with you. We are all the change here um, and you can stay in touch with us online. I'll drop all of those links into the chat too. So yes, thank you so much. Thank you all for starting us off and giving that history on women in economics. And uh, we will bring you back after Lucille and I present on Alliance for Just Money. Uh, so one moment, please. Oops. And let me see. All right, Lucille, take it away. Okay. Um, so thank you to all of you for being at uh, this session of a radical gathering. Um, I have to admit that uh, having been here since last night, um, you all are very hard acts to follow, um, <laughs> and yet you're not acts. That's the most powerful thing, that you are act about action based um, on knowledge and based on experience. Um, so um, Ryan and I represent uh, the Alliance for Just Money, or AFJM for short. And I just wanna say how thrilled that we are to share this uh, screen, this Zoom room um, with an economy of our own. Over the past year, maybe two years, some of our members have gotten involved in an, an economy of our own. And also another collective of women called the Maternal Gift Economy Movement. And it has been very enriching for us to, to learn um, from them and from the work of other groups that are as critical of our economy as AFJM is and are less white, male, and retired than AFJM is. Not 
let me be clear that I have anything against whites, males, and retirees. In fact, I'm married to one and I too am white and retired. And I also am deeply indebted to numerous white uh, male monetary reformers, most of them retired from whom I have learned an immense amount um, and some are even deceased, um, but I commend them and thank them. But we all know it is crucial to have all standpoints present at the design and decision-making tables and that a very, very small minority, as we just heard in uh, the last presentation here, of white male property, I'd say mostly Anglo, Anglo people, somehow set up existing exchange relations to serve their private interests at the expense of the rest of us and our planet. And the rest of us does include a, a, the majority of white men too in the world. Um, but until we understand and change that system, it will keep doing so, defying the interests of the rest of us and other life on this planet. And as the title for our presentation says, we propose, following the last session on just transition, we propose just money as a radical solution uh, that can help us to achieve that, that just transition. So as we've um, heard many people say already at this gathering that the word radical, it means of, relating to, proceeding from, or getting to the root of uh, something. And so the, the question that we wanna start with is what is the, the problem? Or, or what are the problems that we need to get to the root of? Um, we think that the problem is political economic exploitation of people and planet in order to extract profits and wealth into the pockets of a very few powerful players at the expense of everyone and everything else. Social, political, and ecological violence, oppression, and injustice and inequity result. So to kind of repeat that in short, political economic exploitation is the root problem that systematically causes more problems. Then heated by various power relations within the society, other power relations, the violence, oppression, injustice, and inequity caused occur to varying degrees across intersecting identities, including gender, race, sexuality, ability, ethnicity, language, religion, vocation, class, politics, geography, and more. But what causes the main problem? What is at the root of political economic exploitation? Probably many of us here who pause to let you answer this question would do so in a variety of ways, all of which would be to some extent true. But what if we narrow down to its systemic roots? What is the systemic root or cause of political economic exploitation of people and planet? And so in the next 20 or whatever minutes, we are asking you to consider is modern money 
the systemic root of political economic exploitation and the resultant problems that were gathered here to address. And if you think maybe so, we ask you then to grapple with what AFJM suggests that we do about it. So in our current, or as it stands, we have two monetary options. Uh, on the right, we have money created as credit by banks. This is money as debt, a public liability. So as you can see here, as the money is going into circulation in the economy, as that money is paid off, um, as it exits and goes back directly to the banks and, or well, it leaves the economy and um, that interest paid on it goes directly to the banks. We also have another option where money can be created by the government. This would be money as money, a public asset. Um, it would be created by we the people and money would be spent, given, lent, or invested into circulation for the public good and would be stable over time. Uh, the money would be circulating within the economy, enriching its population. And so it's important to ask who has the first use of new money in these two systems. Uh, when money is created as credit by the banks, the banks determine who is credit worthy and they often determine that by who already has the money. When money is created by the government, we the people determine who gets the first use of this money. And it's also important to ask uh, who gets the money for what and who decides, which I did cover that as well. Um, and which system is the one we have today? So I think if we, if we just take a pause to think about that, uh, we could all agree that money is created as credit by the banks and that uh, systematically disadvantages us. Maybe you don't agree with that because you didn't know it before, Lau, but that is actually the case. <laughs> Yes, and this graph uh, shows kind of the disparities that come along with that. So we're highlighting the total U.S. net worth um, owed by its population. And it's pretty daunting to see that 35% of all of the United States net worth lies in the hands of 1%. And if you take the first three columns, that's 77% of uh, the United States net worth in the hands of just 10% of its population. And on the other end, we have 80% of the population hold just 12% of the entire nation's net worth, and half of that has zero. So that's pretty stark. So we actually pay interest not only on loans, on our mortgages or student loans or car loans, um, credit card bills, but also in the price of everything that we buy. It's a cost of doing business in our system, and it's largely that cost borne by consumers. Um, the, this system 
has been international and US dominated since World War II. And so this graph here um, is actually depicts how uh, money was redistributed via interest. So just talking about the, the interest aspect of wealth um, in 2007 in Germany. Um, and it's one of the places where there have been some researchers that have collected that data, not only on interest on loans, but interest built into the price of everything that we buy. Um, and so in this chart, the interest burden is in white and the interest income is in black. And the wealthiest 10%, the 10th de decile is on the right. And the poorest 10% of the population and the first decile is on the left. And you can see here that it shows 80% of the population pay far more in interest than they ever earn over their lifetimes in interest with over 50% only paying interest. They are none, they only pay. Um, and somewhere in the ninth decile, there's a break even point. And really only the top 10, maybe 11 or 12% own enough wealth to profit by earning the interest, interest from the 85% who pay. So how and when did we get to this bank money system, this debt or slash credit money system? As, as Ricky um, and uh, her partner, uh, Carmen, <laughs> just talked about, our economy, largely set up by men, is very, very old. The money system is also much older than many of us realize. It's not you know only since 1913. The practice of creating money out of credit really began by a novel bookkeeping technique um, called double entry bookkeeping in medieval Europe in the late 1200s, early 1300s through the 1500s. It gradually grew as a practice until it was institutionalized and backed by taxes in 1694 in England by an indebted monarch, the king, who wanted to go to war with France, but had, had no means. All the means was in the private banker's hands. Um, and this credit money system, you know, from the 13, 14, 1500s through 1600s, the founding of the US, it fueled nothing less than global exploration, the slave trade, colonialism, and chattel slavery in the US. After 220 years of contested history from 1694, the same system was established nationwide in the US in 1913 through the Federal Reserve Act. It was already the practice, but it was at state uh, and local levels. Um, so this history is huge. And um, we're just, I just wanna share three sort of books um, as examples. The first is The End of Banking. And it's um, really an excellent text. It, you can uh, read a little bit of detail, but it's by two authors that go by the pseudonym Macmillan. Um, it was published in 2014 and already in 2016, it was listed in Investopedia, which is you know, a, uh, a very popular banking finance website but recommended even by them as one of the top five books. And just looking that up 
in the last couple of days, it is still in 2021 and 2022 recommended within the top five books. And they're, they're looking at the, the nature of banking as the creation of money out of credit. That's what they want to end. And that is what the Alliance for Just Money wants to end. And in the third part of their book, they really lay out a very similar proposal to what we lay out coming from very different standpoint um, or positionality than our own. The second book, um, and but they really root um, the end of banking or the beginning of it in, in um, this double entry bookkeeping. The Ecology of Money by Kuzminski, who is actually long before the Alliance was formed, he wrote this book, but he is now a, a member of the Alliance, is, gives a fabulous history on that period of time up through the 1860s when a proposal um, for what Kuzminski calls the people's money was laid out and he kind of updates that for today. And it's a little bit different than what the Alliance um, advocates, but much overlap and it's a historically excellent text. And the last book is by Stephen Zarlinga, um, who uh, authored The Lost Science of Money. It's a huge 700 plus page tome, but looks at over 2,000 years history of, of the lost science of money. Why lost? On us in the 20th and now 21st century, we've not been schooled on this stuff. Um, in my own dissertation studies, you know, the founding of the American high school excluded, when it became a mass institution, excluded political economy from the school curriculum. So all of us have been taught by teachers who were taught by teachers, taught by teachers who didn't learn about uh, this stuff, even though in the 1800s, like Kellogg, who Kuzminski cites, money was a dinner table conversation. Um, so the, the point of the slide is that there's a ton of content out there for how we got to where we are. Um, and we want to um, move on, I think, to uh, how we could get out of it. So but before that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot to cover. Um, this is a visual from howwepay.us. There's a wonderful book, um, How We Pay for a Better World, that's easy to digest, a great start to uh, monetary reform. And as these image depicts, on the bottom right is our current system, the root of which is debt money. The results are depicted in the branches um, as rising inequality, poverty, racism, wealth disparity, endless war and violence, ecological problems, and unstable economy, to name a few. Uh, and what we propose on the right, um, or on the top left, is the system that um, is rooted in just money and the branches are depicted as less inequality, better lives, more leisure, more choice, uh, resources and species preservation, and a clean and healthy world with a stable economy, um, with fair elections and a democratic republic. So these are all things that we can have. And as we have asked as a radical gathering um, in our assumptions, 
how do we get there? How do we get to this more green, luscious, uh, thriving economy? Oh, yeah, how do we get there? Um, and where is the there? The first way is to learn. As I said before, we've, we've not really been taught about the money system itself. Um, and then to join others learning about it and doing something about it, figure out what to do and advocate for that. Collaborate across uh, intersectional groups focused on different issues. And we're gonna get to what that collaboration is about as we move on in the slide set. Activate. And if that's not enough, demand by all means necessary that we shift to a public money from a private money debt-based system. All means short of violence, I would say. Um, and so to learn, um, look up and read these websites um, and subscribe to their mailing list. So the first one there is ours, um, monetaryalliance.org. The second is American Monetary Institute. Um, that's the organization we grew out of. It started in 1996. They had their first conference in 2005. Um, it was founded by Stephen Zarlanga, who wrote The Lost Science of Money. And they still have conferences. Their next one will be, in, be online in October. And I encourage you to come to that. The International Movement for Monetary Reform uh, is, as it says, many organizations like ours, the Alliance, that are members of this loose network coalition of other national organizations working at macro level monetary reform in their own country. There are over 30 um, organizations that are members of IMMR. It started in about mm, 2016 maybe. Um, and we are working together. The, the EU members are working on a, a EU-wide petition for just money or another synonym for that is sovereign money. Um, and there, the next website is called Sovereign Money. It's by a German um, sociologist of ecolo ecology and economy. It's a fabulous information-filled, well-developed, um, uh, concise, uh, powerful uh, website. How We Pay for a Better World was uh, is based on a book by two of our members and a former and current board member. They have a website. The entire contents of the book are on two sets of pages there. If you go to start here, it's a very user-friendly um, introduction. And so is the About Money pages on the Alliance website. And finally, Workable Economics is um, also by a retired technical uh, writer, a woman who has done also incredible research. So all of these websites, there are others out there, but these are really powerful, strong places to go to, to learn. And once you learn, um, and you, 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 if you get the idea that we're talking about something underlying, something systemic that underlies and causes the problems that were gathered at this radical gathering to address, we encourage you to advocate uh, for Just Money Reform, to col collaborate with us in doing that, and specifically to endorse what we're calling now the American Monetary Reform Act, 
um, and become an individual or organizational member of AFJM to, to help in this work. So what is the American Monetary Reform Act and what does it do? So the AMRA, uh, for short, in a nutshell, in order to enable the federal government to correct inherent flaws in our monetary system, to fund the public good as Congress over time defines it, and to gradually retire the national debt, which is now over $30.5 trillion, which is a ridiculous number to conceptualize. Um, and if we broke that down into our population of the United States, that would um, be roughly $91,000 of debt in each of our hands. Um, so obviously it's not dispersed like that, but just to give an idea. Um, so the American Monetary Reform Act is what we're calling our radical solution, and it does the following. Requires Congress to be the sole creator of all US money debt free. It ends the privilege of commercial banks to create money and transfers all remaining operations of the Fed to the US Treasury. These three prongs are interdependent and all three must be done together for this transition to just money to occur, take root and serve our commerce and society. And if you go to uh, the Alliance's website, our mission is aligned with exactly what we're asking for in AMRA. Uh, and if you end up liking this proposal, please sign our petition to create just money to create a just money system on our homepage at monetaryalliance.org. And I do want to note that AMRA is an update to the Need Act for those who might be familiar. Yeah, so Ryan just gave you a quick overview and we want to just add a bit more detail on these three prongs of the monetary reform proposal. So first, AMRA transfers money creation from banks where it currently exists to the federal government, ending money creation by banks through fractional reserve lending or any other means, and thereby transferring authority for modulation of and seniorage from creating the US money supply, all forms, digital paper and coin from private banks to the public sector as is provided for in section one, article eight of the current US constitution. So just to add a little specifics here, seniorage is not a well-known word, it's an old world, but basically it means there are it means the gain that accrues from the creation and first use of money. It arises from the difference between the cost of producing money and the face value or purchasing power of new money. And you can imagine the difference between producing coins, producing paper notes, producing account digits and accounts. And currently, the only gain that accrues from the creation of the money by our, our federal government is for coins. That's less than 2% of, of the money supply. The rest of it um, is, goes into the pockets of the private banks. 
the first use of our entire money supply or 98% of it or so. And the benefits from that, they don't have to earn the money. They get to create it as credit when you or me or any private, commercial or public unit of government decides to borrow it. Um, so that's what senior age is. And part of our argument is that that belongs in the public sector and we would have a lot more to clean up the gulf. Um, so, and secondly, the point is that this is constitutional. Our current money system is arguably not constitutional. People will debate it, but section one, article eight says a lot more. It has 18 clauses, but the authority to create money is a power vested in Congress under this uh, section of article one in clause five, which says to coin money, regulate the value thereof, and of foreign coin and fix the standard of weights and measures. And the beginning of the, the article, section eight, is talking about the powers of Congress. So that's referred to as a coinage clause, and it grants Congress exclusive power over the creation of coin-based money, upon which all paper or electronic money creation depends. And then secondly, clause two um, is says, that it's Cong Congress has the power to borrow money on the credit of the United States. And that's referred to as the borrowed money clause. And this grants Congress power to issue its own legal tender US notes as a borrowing of coined money. That's the current interpretive law. So even so, even though what we are arguing for is arguably more constitutional than the current money system, the provision for holy public money in our constitution could be much clearer. And we commend the fourth and fifth um, assumptions of this radical gathering for recognizing that one, constitutions are moral or ethical documents that shape our lives. And secondly, that the US constitution needs to be reviewed and renewed, rewritten or scrapped. And I think many in AFJM do prefer to rewrite it and to make even the monetary authority into a fourth branch of government. Um, that's not constitutional currently. We don't have a fourth branch of government. And so instead of housing the monetary authority there, um, we'll show in the next prong uh, that it's uh, established within the US Department of Treasury. So by doing that, we ask for an independent monetary authority to establish appropriate rates of new U.S. money creation by government to avoid inflation or deflation, a revolving fund for lending to banks in case it is necessary to maintain the liquidity for bank lending of pre-existing U.S. money, especially during the transition to the new system, and a monetary bureau to incorporate into the treasury the needed functions of the Federal Reserve System while ending the existence of the Federal Reserve as a separate commercial bank owned ent entity. Uh, one feature of the Federal Reserve System is assuring that US payment and settlement systems are secure, efficient, accessible, and private. So, and the third thing AMRA does is specifies that banks shall offer two kinds of customer accounts. The first one is transaction accounts for use as a payment system, and those will be kept in bailment. 
separate from bank balance sheets where they currently exist. And being separate from bank balance sheets, they would be thus protected from possible bank failure. And secondly, uh, banks would offer and maybe other uh, commercial entities could offer saving and investment accounts to be used by banks or those other financial uh, enterprises for investing on behalf of customers, returning any interest to customers who deposit money in these accounts. Um, so just that the first one, that is the money in there is public money, is your money. It doesn't belong to the bank as our current checking accounts do, but it belongs to you. It's just in, in an account that's on the public ledger, so to speak. Savings and investment accounts would have our money in it that we decide to, to save and let other people use while we don't need it, which actually protects the purchasing power of that money for when we do need it, because we'll be in a productive, flourishing economic unit. Um, and it may also be investment where we want to, to um, support different kinds of investments and maybe have a share in the benefits of that work. Finally, um, as the above three prongs are implemented, AMRA provides for an orderly transition from the present debt-based money system to a 100% public money system with first, um, the principles of all loans outstanding at the date of implementation being paid through to the revolving fund where they are available for recirculation if and when the monetary authority determines the money supply warrants it to keep prices stable. And that's what Ryan said in before on that two systems um, screen that the current system, when, when loans are paid off, the principal is written down and off out of the money supply. It's extinguished. And um, you know, if all debts were paid off, we wouldn't have a money supply left. Um, and that's part of why more money has to be lent into circulation, but the interest isn't created and that causes an ex exponential growth imperative built in as does the extinguishment. So in, um, in AMRA, that the loans outstanding at the date of implementation will be paid through um, to this recircling, circulating, um, revolving fund. And secondly, all treasury bonds, um, that's how the, the government, federal government gets most of this money now is by issuing treasury bonds and selling it for real money or debt-based money out there. Um, and so those bonds will be paid off in US money, public money, as they come due. Um, and while there will still be physical money in the form of coins and paper notes, the vast majority of the money supply will be digital or account-based US dollars, just as it is today, but it will be public money, not privately created debt-based money. So to get to our conclusion here, we kind of view, or I do at least, just money reform via AMRA as the funnel to the future that we all want to build. 
I think all of us at this radical gathering want to build a future that is sustainable, just, democratic, restorative, and flourishing. And the funnel is kind of AMRA and the civil society organizations, commerce and government have to um, create that funnel of AMRA to this future. And you know, many civil society organizations are represented here at this gathering. And this is just you know, a smattering listed, different civil rights groups, environmental groups, democracy organizations, independent and public media, legal and professional organizations. Um, and on the left, commerce groups. I mean, the chambers of commerce, we heard today, they are like the, the corporations union but they too are affected by this money and debt system. And there are small companies in those chambers and we need to educate them and get them on board. Renewable energy companies, land and water reclamation, we heard about that earlier today, labor unions, worker-owned cooperatives, social entrepreneurships, an economy of our own, maternal gift economy movement, all, we all don't have to make just money reform our main and sole area of work, but to endorse it, to see that our problems are systemically caused by underneath at the bottom by this money system and the solutions that we know how to do are possible within a just money system. And without just money system, our problems are made worse. And so then all the units of government from federal, state, county, municipal, um, elected leaders and civil servants, political parties and candidates, public school districts, public colleges and universities. We heard about civics curriculum. This needs to be in that, um, what was it? It was uh, ultimate. Or, a better name for that civics and even police and prisons and corrections um those workers see the cutting edge of, of problems they need to see that they will have far fewer problems to deal with in a just money system so this is sort of the funnel to the future that it just money will not solve all our problems but it will create the conditions of the possibility and the resources for solving our problems with the wisdom and uh, that we have collectively. Before I jump into this slide, I just wanted to share that we are getting close to wrapping up. So if you have any questions for an economy of our own or for Alliance for Just Money, the chat will be opening shortly. So please be ready to put those in the chat. Um, Building off of the funnel analogy, I think this image depicts wonder, wonderfully how we each represent a piece of the funnel individually and collectively through each other and our movements. And one way to view AMRA is that it has the potential to band us together through the funnel to a more equitable future that we all want for tomorrow's children. Um, and as it has been repeated throughout this gathering so far, is that it's important that we come together uh, not to necessarily say this is what um, 
like we need to listen to one another and uplift each other's uh, movements in the ways that we can. And AMRA is just one way that you can help to lift up an alliance for just money. So let's root our commerce in just money and grow deep and enduring peaceful communities and societies that wage life, not war. Um, and we welcome you to visit monetaryalliance.org to stay tuned. Um, and we want a world where we change our money and change our world. And that wraps up our presentation. So the chat is open. Uh, wonderful. And could we, yes, Ricky and Carmen are coming back up. Uh, so I will go ahead and get started with uh, Greg's question in the chat. Um, what's the main differences between your Just Money proposal and modern monetary theory that some in Congress support? Uh, does anybody want to tackle that? So there probably are some other people in the room who can do a better job but um, I will attempt. Um, and that is that uh, modern monetary theory is a school of thought that came out of academia. Um, and we share um, a analysis of the existing money system. Um, our description of the current money system is pretty, pretty in sync with each other and not in sync with what um, conventional economics in academia has taught. They, they have not taught, as I said before, not only in kindergarten and K-12, but in the university either. They haven't, money has been a black box considered sort of neutral. So it's positive that describing the system as it is, um, is happening. But basically MMP stops there. And they think that it seems to me, if we just act in sync with the system we have, it will solve all our problems. All that does is um, increase the debt imperative and um, say that it, it, it can go on forever. They, they argue that we can have deficit spending and the debt doesn't matter. That might be easy for US citizens to say because the US dollar is a, the dominant global currency currently um, and has been since World War II, but they do not share at all, um, at least the school as a whole and many within it, even some, some understand the proposal and even have, have presented at AMI meetings, but they do not share um, the, the Need Act or the American Monetary Reform Act. They are not advocating for a shift, a fundamental radical shift to public money and away as a public asset and away from a debt-based money system. Thank you. Does anyone else have a comment on the good old modern monetary theory? <laughs> All right, uh, there's another uh, good question that comes up a lot uh, in, this, uh, in this realm. So from Enabel, what do we all think about cryptocurrency in these models? Does anybody have thoughts on cryptocurrencies? I do. 
Um, I, I think I agree with uh, a lot of um, a lot of experts who've come out most recently with what's been happening with the volatile market for cryptocurrency. It's I, I believe its name, crypto, kind of gives it away. You know, it, it's it's a scam, and there are people who are getting very very wealthy, and other people who are uh, losing money and encountering um, digital encounters. The um, what is the name of the agency that um, is the Consumer Credit? Um, help me out here. Uh, it's the one that um, uh, the controller of the currency, the office of. No, no, I'm talking about the consumer agency that um, Elizabeth Warren started, and then um, they take public uh, complaints and they publish them. And uh, Wall Street on Parade, which is a, a column that I, I admire a great deal. Um, printed some of the complaints that uh, people were making about um, all kinds of, um, I don't know what you call it, except thievery happening. So be careful is my advice. I would just add, it's, it's really not a currency. It's a private commodity um, and uh, more similar to, to gold. Um, than it is to, to money. Um, and it is attempting, there are a lot of interests out there to get it regulated and therefore protected by the public sector. That's a bad idea. Um, there are also some forms of cryptocurrencies that are being called stable coins that are uh, not, a, if our current money system isn't stable, being pegged being connected to our US dollar currently, its current form, won't be stable. But the idea of that is gaining traction. There's been a presidential study group with the president, the FDIC, and um, the controller of the currencies office looking at stable coin and a lot of private players in that. We do not advocate that at all. And then the other area that comes up and we have voiced ourselves on and I just found it was published on the Fed website yesterday. Um, they issued a paper on central bank digital currency in January and asked for public comments. And so the, um, we encouraged our members to read it. Um, and if they were so moved to, to weigh in and give public comments. And as we did that ourselves, um, board members and alliance members, and we encourage subscribers to do that too. Um, we ended up writing public comments as an organization and submitted them. And you can read them now on our website. They're already published, but the Fed published them. It's in the, the eighth PDF document. But anyhow, the point about central bank digital currency, it's being talked about among all the central banks. The Bank of International Settlements in Brussels is where all the central bankers meet. Um, because they are threatened by cryptocurrencies and private currencies and, you know, what Facebook has issued, Libra now calling it Diem, um, Amazon will probably come out with its own. And, you know, what our, our current money system is private, the vast majority of it, but it's exchangeable, fungible with coins and paper notes, and therefore is 
de facto, not de jure legal tender, but de facto legal tender. And um, they would like, uh, they're threatened by something like Diem, and which is 100% private. And if they would connect it as a so-called stable coin, um, that will threaten, that will very much threaten the existing banking system. And so central banks are looking at it and trying to create some kind of digital central bank denominated in each, each nation's currency. Um, and we do not support that unless it is part and parcel of sovereign money reform or just money reform. And then it's a different ballgame. Uh, but in the United States, our so-called central bank, the Federal Reserve, is privately owned by all the commercial banks in the 12 different regions, 12 different banks. So our ballgame is pretty different than many other countries. Many central banks, including England, started as private in 1694. But in the 1940s, uh, it was nationalized. Money creation was not nationalized. That would have been a big ball game change, but they just nationalized the bank itself and many other central banks ours. But so we only, it's, it's why this moment of time is unprecedented with the pressure from central bank digital currencies, the pressure from cryptocurrencies, um, and the technology exists, digital money has long existed, you know, account-based money, you know, checking long before computers. But um, we, we need to use this moment of time to have actually public money wholly separating money into the public sector and credit of existing money that can be and should be in the private sector. Um, so I'll just uh, want to add that um, another um, problem with the cryptocurrency, I don't know if this is true for the digital currency, but I imagine it would be true. Um, the blockchain technology required has an environmental impact, and um, you can find articles about that environmental impact of, you know, of a cryptocurrency using as much energy to... Right keep track of things digitally as right. use yeah energy and water water resources are crucial for cooling all the servers and um yeah a uh, uh, digital currency we have it in banks now we have payment systems so it doesn't have to be blockchain based it does have to be secure and mm. private and but our current bank accounts are are private basically um, even if, yeah. <laughs> so, but providing that security and having a system that is sustainable and, you know, not going only to digital because there will be rolling blackouts. They're talking about it this summer in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. um, and so there have to be uh, physical tokens as well. I'm wondering if uh, we could dive into a little bit about um, public banks that's not something that we've really covered here yet we have about like seven minutes so um but i, I know 
an economy of our own does really great learning circles on public banking. And while that's not necessarily what the Alliance for Just Money is pushing forward, I think it is a great way to mobilize within your own community. Um, so I'm wondering if Ricky or Carmen could maybe talk on that and then we'll bring it back to Lucille. Well, we're thinking of it um, mostly as, as a transition because um, as you pointed out, Lucille, a lot of the things that you said today, a lot of people don't know. Um, that banks create money. Um, and so in a way, pub we view public banking as um, if you can't lick them, join them. <laughs> and and um, it, it enables, it's a more democratic form of banking in the public interest using public money. Uh, our governments have revenues from various places. And um, and a public bank like the one that exists in North Dakota, although there, there is legislation passed in California and there are now some being organized there, um, that, that they um, have an interest in investing in the local economy. Uh, your big Wall Street banks have no interest in that. They're global um, forces interested in looking for the most profit they possibly can. Banking in the public interest is quite different and um, ideally is more democratic. Um, it's run by bankers who know what they're doing, but, um, but it's answerable, it's accountable to the public and it has a mission that's framed by the public. So um, we think it's a good way for people to begin to learn about banking because most people don't know about it or think about it. Most people have a really negative association with banking, right? I do. Um, so um, yeah, I, uh, I, I, think, I think it's an interesting step. Uh, it would help uh, us to educate the public about how money is created now and, um, and how it is possible to have something to say about the economy. We've had really good responses to our learning circle um, and Carmen has had a lot to do with that. Um, we've got, uh, we're actually planning, um, we're, we're needing to raise some funds to do it, but by the end of the, uh, we mentioned that a learning circle is a small group uh, where uh, people can feel safe and learning together and ask you know, whatever questions, they don't have to worry about some expert uh, looking at them like they're um, stupid because they ask a question. Um, so, so we've had two of these so far and we've invited um, experts to come in and talk to us, experts, organizers, activists to come in and talk to us and we've recorded those. And so we intend to package that learning circle with a leader's guide to make it available to a larger public. We wanna widen the circle of people who are interested enough to have a learning circle in their own community and learn more about it together. And um, so we hope by the end of the year, uh, we'll, we'll have that available on our website. Carmen, do you wanna add anything about public banking? No, I mean, Ricky is definitely the expert there, but, um, you know, I do, I do think that's something that's 
obviously such a big difference is like between the idea of a private currency and the idea of a bank that, you know, is invested in not just, it's not just that the community kind of has ownership over the bank, it's that the bank, instead of working to raise money for itself, is going to be able to reinvest into the community that it belongs to. So I think that that also, you know, sort of connects in with all those other areas of economic justice that we're so often talking about of like reinvestment where it needs to be. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Well, Carmen, could you could you put in the uh, the chat the survey that we're um, asking yes. for people to um, tell us what they most want to learn about? And we put out some suggestions. Um, cooperative businesses is how do you do that? Would was one possibility. Um, and I'm forgetting all the other ones, but there <laughs> there are some suggestions in our survey for things to learn about and also space for you to just tell us what isn't on our list that you're interested in knowing more about and uh, we'll work on that. I could just add on public banking. I mean, I really support and um, think it's great the, the point that's been said that it's a vehicle for helping people to think about the nature of money and our monetary exchange relations. Um, and I also think um, like the one book that was in our slide, so The Ecology of Money, the proposal that goes back to the 1860s was by a guy, you can find it on, you know, online easy, um, Kel Edward Kellogg, it was a new monetary system and the subtitle was the only means of securing the rights of labor and property and of protecting the public from financial revulsions. But he advocates basically for almost a similar decentralized public banking system for um, how money is injected into the economy is at the local level. And there's some overlaps there with the, the public banking notions. Um, and he's, he has a fixed rate of interest on that new entry of new money of 1% or 1.1. But Kosminski updates and advocates this for, for contemporary time. And so I, I think there's some dialogical territory and you know the same with MMT, the public banking movement shares the critique. And I, I think it is a problem to, if you can't let them join them because you're leaving the growth imperative that is doing the damage in place. If we have to have that system, it's an improvement to, to say the proceeds, the profits are go back to the, the community. And it's a public bank where the municipality and state governments can have their accounts. And it has some mandate for who, not who, but what is, um, what gets loans. You know, there's a public mandate. So those are all benefits, but um, we would, you know, think we do need to address the growth imperative and we do need yes. money as money and not as created by debt and public banking kind of leaves that creation of money as debt in place and interest bearing. So. I definitely agree with you. I, it really changed my um, 
my whole attitude toward money when I realized we're really exchanging IO, IOU notes, you know, I'm, this is somebody's debt, you know, it somehow um, makes it far less glamorous to have a lot of it, doesn't it? And the banks are getting the seniorage that Herman yes. are talking. They're accruing the benefits of that creation and getting the face value of the purchasing power and they don't have to earn it. They get to, to create it that and spend it and get all those interest payments back. Right. And plus fees. You know, it's not like you don't pay fees either. Right. I would like to thank each of you for being up here on this panel. Uh, this has been a very good and important conversation to be having. And I think that we do envision an economy that is regenerative, regenerative, sustainable, and equitable. And that is what we are all working towards here. And so as promised, uh, we do have, uh, we'll have a big resource share um, throughout this weekend and at the end of this gathering and uh, the resources that an economy of our own and Alliance for Just Money have shared will be there. So it's a lot to take in, it's a lot to digest uh, and hopefully you know, we'll see you all around. But thank you all so much and I will pass it over to Annabelle. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much.